Your, your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our paths. Um, help us believe that that lamp is burning bright. When we look around and see a world that we don't know what to do with oftentimes, that, that your lamp continues to burn. Help us believe it. Um, help us to trust in it. And as we come to a difficult text this morning that calls us to follow, would your spirit do a work in our hearts? In Jesus' name, amen. I want you to travel back in time with me to experience, maybe in a way you haven't, the moral dilemmas of yesteryear that people have had to work through. 1760, and your family is in England, and your dad decides that he is tired of King George, and he wants you as the eldest son both for religious liberty purposes as well as the fact that you're just an adventurer to get on a ship and come to the American colonies. And you do so, you follow your dad's instruction and you come and it's hard, it's hard living in these colonies and the taxes from King George are still really, really high and yet you don't see many government services coming to you. And there's been talk and whispers of revolution, and those whispers become a fever pitch. What do you do? What do you do? Your, your home is in England. Your family is there. It's your homeland, and yet you have roots now in America. And you have problems with the English government. What do you choose? Do you choose to get on a ship and go back home? Do you choose to kind of be like Switzerland and just be neutral somehow? Or do you choose to take up arms and fight? Moral dilemma. Fast forward 100 years, the year is 1860, and you live in Alabama. And your family owns a farm or a plantation. And that plantation produces a lot of wealth for you and your family and you come to Jesus. You come to Jesus and you realize that slavery is wrong, that people are made in the image of God and have worth. And your peers say, it's not a big deal. And your pastor says, it is a big deal. And then there's a new president that comes on the scene in the north named Abraham Lincoln. And your state secedes. What do you do? When civil war comes to your home, do you release your slaves as a Christian? Do you head north? Do you fight for the Union Army? Or do you stay and try to protect your land and your family? Difficult moral decisions that are before you, that pits you as a citizen, perhaps even against your government. Fast forward 75 more years, and you're a German woman. And Hitler has just come into power. And it's really clear that he's a dictator. It's really clear that he has hard, hard prejudices against the Jews and others. And yet your business that you have, your family business now is thriving. The economy is booming like it's never boomed before. And yet you begin to notice that your friends, your Jewish friends have an ominous sign, star of David, that the government is imposing that they wear. So they are a marked people. 
And then you begin to notice that your Jewish friends are disappearing. What do you do? Do you go along with your peers because there is a rising decision that you have to make to be for the Fuhrer or against him? What do you do? Do you defy directly the government knowing the circumstances could be grim? Do you hide Jews who are your friends and take care of them? What do you do? How does the gospel and the truth of God's word shape the way you think about authority, the way that you understand church and state? Do you stand against your government? How do you know when to stand against your government? Or do you respect and recognize the sovereignty and obey the government's commands? How do you know? And let me ask a more general question, because this issue of government has really more to do with your bent toward authority at times, doesn't it? So what's your natural bent toward authority? What's your natural bent toward civil authority? Is it defiantly independent? We are Texans. Defiantly independent, where you have this embedded, resentful animosity toward any authority? specifically government authority, and your attitude shows it, the things that your kids say at school come home, and you're like, why did they say that? Because you may have said it. Or maybe you're just this Christian who is kind of uninvolved, and you're indifferent. This isn't God's kingdom. This is a colossal waste of time. I am just going to be uninvolved and completely indifferent to the world around me. Or maybe I would add this one to the mix In the last five to ten years, maybe you're just a compliant harmonizer. And whatever the government tells you to do, you're just going to do, regardless of the fact that God calls you in his word to live a certain way. There's tension here, isn't there? There's tension in knowing how to live as dual citizens. If you know Jesus, you are a dual citizen. You are first a citizen of heaven. And our hope and our home is there. But you also have a foot here. You also have responsibility in the world that you live in, in the country you live in, in the state you live in, in the community that you live in, to be engaged. But what in the world does that look like? How do I have wisdom in these areas with the bents that I have? Turn with me to Romans chapter 13. And we'll be in verses 1 through 7. If I had a text or a few texts in the last two years of the world that we've been living in, Romans 13 and 14 would be the text we could spend a lot of time in. Romans 13, 1 through 7, these are Paul's thoughts about our gospel responsibilities, our biblical responsibilities towards authority. He's already talked about our biblical responsibilities toward God in chapter 12, that we are living sacrifices, that we don't get squeezed in and conform to the world, but we're transformed to our responsibility to God. And then he talked about the responsibility that we have within our church, that we're to use our gifts to serve the body, and then this call to love one another and care for one another and bear each other's burdens. And then he steps outside of the church in chapter 12, verse 17 through 21. What's my responsibility to the world? What's my responsibility even to my enemy? 
You remember what he says? He says, don't avenge. Don't repay evil for evil, but repay evil with good. God will avenge. And you know, God will do that in the end, as we talked about last week. But there's a tool that God has in the here and now to deal with evil. And that tool is government. And so we're going to look at what Paul says about government. There's something really important to understand about his background. As you read this text, and if you know this text, you come to it with all these, yeah, but, right? Subject yourself to the governing authorities. Yeah, but what about this? Yeah, but what about that? I was reading this text at our dinner table the other night, and I, one through seven, and I got to verse about five, and one of my kids goes, yeah, but what about this? And what about that? This is the, this is the challenge of this text. We come to it with a lot of yeah, but. But I want to remind you of something. As as hard as the world that you live in and I live in is to navigate as a Christian, do you remember the Roman world when Paul's writing this? They've got a Caesar, an emperor named Nero. What do you know about Nero? What do you know about the form of government that they had? This is a dictatorship. They don't have freedoms and rules and rights like you and I do. In the Roman Christians, what's interesting is, is in a couple of years, these same Roman Christians and Paul are going to go through deep persecution. You wouldn't know it by reading this. Do you know that Nero, he's known for his persecution of Christians in the first century. In like 64 AD, I'm going to give you a little history here to understand this. This is this evil dictator. His policies aren't going so well. The currency in his day is diminishing, and people in Rome aren't happy with him. And in 64 AD, he had gone basically on a retreat with his government officials, and there's arson that happens in the city of Rome for six days, and much of the city burns. He's already got heat on him from the people of Rome and his rule, and you know what he does? He throws the Christians under the bus, and they become the scapegoats to the fire in Rome. And you know what he does? It's open season for persecution of Christians. He kills Christians. He burns them at the stake by fire in the Colosseum. Don't know if you've ever been there. It was eerie when I went, knowing all of this. They would take lions and tigers and maim Christians. They would take skins of animals and sick dogs. I mean, it was disgusting. It was sport. That's the evil government that Paul is writing in the midst of. And I want you to listen to these words. They will blow your mind. He still calls, as Jesus would, and as Peter will later, he still calls us to some things. Look at it. Romans 13. That's the context And yet Paul says this, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist who will will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to you for good conduct, but to bad Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. 
But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes, even to Nero. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed. Sounds like Jesus, doesn't it? To them, taxes in whom taxes are owed. Render to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to the Lord what is Lord. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to those who it is owed. Honor to whom it is owed. Listen, there are a lot of caveats. This is, these are general principles of being sub- citizens of a nation, of a country, under the authority of a government. They're general principles, and we're going to get to the yeah buts. We're going to get to the notable exceptions at the end. But I want you to kind of sit in this for a, a bit. And I want you to recognize a number of things. The first thing that you see in this text in verses 1 and 2 is the origin. The origin of all authority. Is it man? It's God. The origin of authority comes from God, not man. He designed it. He delegates it. He grants it. He uses it for his glory and our good. And you know what else he does? He takes it away. And, and even more still, he even grants and allows it for our judgment. You can't read the Old Testament without seeing kings like Nebuchadnezzar and Cyrus who bring judgment upon a nation. The nation Israel's in captivity to Babylon and Assyria and the Persians because of their disobedience. So he will even use evil, evil government to bring about his purposes. This is the sovereignty of God. Here's your first thought. And it's a hard one sometimes when you look around. But it's this. God sovereignly ordains and establishes governing authorities. He sovereignly ordains and establishes governing authorities. The origin is from God. And you know what that means? Here's what it means. It means our bent at least. Go with me here. Our bent at least should be to try to submit to not defy authority. That should be our bent. Here's the thing, though. Authority is in the Bible is even broader than government, isn't it? God gives authority to governments. He gives authority in the home, mom and dad, over children. He gives authority in the church, elders, leaders. He gives authority in the workplace, employees, employers, boss, employee. You see it all the way through it, and all this comes from God. I know, hold on to your yeah buts. Just, just hold on. All authority comes from God. So I'll ask you again, what's your general posture toward authority? Kids, when your mom and dad ask you to do something or tells you not to do something, what's your response to that authority that God has placed in your life? I'm not going to do it. No, no. What's your response? How about this? How about when a boss makes, in your mind, in your coworker's mind, a really dumb decision at work? What is the break room discussion like? What about in your church where, where, where you disagree with the new logo of the church or whatever it is, or the direction or, or whatever it is? What's your response? 
What's your initial response to that? When a policeman pulls you over and he comes to the door and he says, hey, do you know why I pulled you over? And you say, no, I sure don't. Why in the heck are you doing this? Please enlighten me. First of all, you're not getting off if if that's your attitude, right? What's your response to authority? When a ref in a football game that your son's playing in makes a really bad call, your son clearly caught that 40-yard pass on the sideline, he got his hands under the ball, and the ref's on the other side, and you as a dad are like 80 yards away, but you know the right call. And you're yelling at the ref for all to listen, pastor. Had your back, man. Or you're coaching your like eight-year-old soccer team. And one of your players kicks the ball and it just crushes this little girl's face. And like you stop for 10 minutes, the ball goes out of bounds after it hits her face. And you stop the whole thing for 10 minutes and you take care of the child. And the ref gives the ball to the other team. And you're one of the coaches and you're like, hey man, it's our ball. It's off her head. To which your other coach who's in your church is like, hey man, it's okay. <laughs> what? What's, your, what's your posture toward authority? Sorry. And what about if you're in the place of authority? Like, you have authority in your home. Men, what does that look like in your home? That you're the leader of your home. Is that authority exercised? Do you lord it over your wife and your children? Because there's implication in this text that, that authority is for good. That you're God's servant. There's a responsibility here, too, for those in power. So in your home, what does your authority look like? Is it loving? Is it sacrificial? Is it grace and truth? What is it like in your home? How are you wielding your power in your work? What kind of boss do your employees say that you are? Is it for good? Are you being God's servant? And as it relates specifically, because this text is about government authority, civil authority in your life, I think one of the messages that Paul's painting here, even in the corrupt environment of the Romans that they're living in, I think he's, he's saying to them, there's kind of this warning like, don't be quick on the draw. You ever been there? If you're naturally independent and defiant about authority in general or specifically about government, you're usually really quick on the draw. I'm moving to Canada tomorrow because this, Canada might not be the place, y'all. Right? You're quick on the draw. He's saying, settle down. Remember. Remember that God is sovereign. Even over Nero. And over Caesar. He's sovereign over all these things. He's ordained and established government authorities. That's a message we kind of need to hear in, in the culture that we live in. Generally and specifically, don't be, don't be quick to paint yourself into the corner. Don't be quick to defy. God is in control. It's hard to see that sometimes, but he is in control. I want, you to, I want to point you to Jesus because Jesus has a great response to authority, a number of great responses to authority. 
Jesus is before Pilate. Do you remember the scene? And the people are calling for Jesus' head. Crucify him. Jesus is silent. And Pontius Pilate is basically going to Jesus saying, help me out. Say something. Don't you know I have the power to let you go or to crucify you? In that moment, what does Jesus say? Look at it here. You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Here's Jesus about to go to a cross for you and for me. And he knows his father has put Pontius Pilate in place for this purpose, to be given up for you and for me. Now God ordains and establishes authority even on the worst day in human history where the greatest evil was ever perpetrated upon the Son of God. It's His authority. And Jesus recognizes. You know that Jesus submitted Himself to earthly authority that He might die on a cross for you and me that we might have life. Do you know that message? It's a gospel call. It's a gospel call to submit ourselves to Jesus. See, God sovereignly ordains and establishes authority. Don't be quick on the draw. You might find yourself on the wrong side. Against the Lord, if you're not careful, there's a warning here. But if government is this good gift that we're talking about here, what's its design? What's the design of of government? Because all all I see is power and corruption. What's supposed to be, at least, its function? Look at verses 3 and 4. Look at the way Paul describes the purpose of government. Rulers are not to be a terror to good, but to bad. Do you see this in these two verses? Good, bad. If you do what is good, you will receive his approval. He's God's servant for your good Don't be afraid. If you do wrong, be afraid. There's a purpose of government. Let me give it to you. God's good design for government is to punish evil and to uphold or encourage good, specifically conduct, moral conduct. That's the purpose of government that God has ordained and put into place. The role of this ruler here is to punish evil, to encourage good conduct. See, the heart and purpose of government, your elected officials that you get to elect and vote for, the main purpose that they play is to uphold moral good and to put down moral evil. We're going to come back to that in a minute. It's foundational to our society. And as citizens, if we don't do anything wrong, we're not to fear Government, in that case, would be operating as it should. We're we're to do good, and and the promise in a right government is that there would be reward. They're sowing and reaping. This is why governments, this is why our government gives nonprofits who do good a tax break. That's why the church has a tax break in our country, because the government, at least long term, has said, you're doing good. There's reward for doing good in society. 
you know, I'm, I'm looking at this text, and I'm, I'm looking at fearing, doing wrong. And I remember there was a time in high school, and my, my parents were out of town, and I was driving around, and my, my friend and I, I had this truck, and we were, we were messing around on the roads, and, and I ran into him. And instead of stopping and figuring it out, I just bolted home. <laughs> That's, don't, don't do that. Just bolted home. It's like a fender bender. My parents weren't in town. Nobody was there. And I remember locking the doors and thinking, what's going to happen? This is, there's no logic in this, by the way. There's none. But I was scared, and I ran. And the next morning, nothing had happened. I thought police would show up, or my friend would show up, or his parents would show up. Nothing happened. But I called. I'm like, my conscience got the most of me. I'm like, if I don't deal with this, my parents are going to know, and all these bad things are going to happen. So I called my friend's parents are like, look, this is what happened. I came to, and we worked it out. And I hope my parents aren't listening because I don't think to this day I told them the right reason to that. But the, for this, there's conscience here. I feared the wrong that I had done. Listen, the role of civil authority It says it over and over, and it's hard to see when you think about maybe some government officials. They're God's servants. The reason he's saying that is because there's an extension of authority. There's an extension of authority that also bears the sword. Do you see it? And the sword is punishment, that it is right and good for the government to bring punishment against the wrongdoer, to avenge, Romans 12, 19, that we were in last week, to avenge. There's a place for government to punish wrongdoing, to put down, to punish evil, and to encourage good. We've been watching a show called 60 Days In. It's this jail show. And these people, these civilians come into a jail, and they experience jail life. It's also meant for this jail to figure out what's going on, to improve the jail and there was this one lady who came in, and she was there for 60 days. And you're, you're, you're watching all, it's fascinating. You're watching all this happen, and she got out. She was a police officer, and she got out, and she was all torn up because, because of conditions, which some of them were bad. But she said, I'm not going to be a police officer anymore because I don't want people to be punished in this way. And I just want to say, there is a place, there's a right place. There's a balance here, but there's a right place. For there to be punishment for evil and upholding what is good. This specific reference to bearing the sword, do you see it there? It's God delegating the role of avenger to the state that they should punish. And it's specifically, if you go back to Genesis chapter 9, go there with me. I think it'll be up here. But Genesis chapter 9 is kind of a foundational text to understand the origin of government. Remember, God created all this place to be good and us to have fellowship with him. And then we sinned against God and there was rampant sin that continued. You see murder, you see all kinds of evil, and you get past the flood. By the way, this is before the law of God. This is before the covenant people of God in chapter 12. So he's addressing this to the whole world. And you come to Genesis chapter 9 and he says to Noah, listen, we're starting over. There's only like 10 people on the earth. So this is the beginning of a new civilization, effectively. Verse 5, And for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it. And from man, 
from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. That's capital punishment. Why? For God made him in his own image. There's a place for government to punish. And if, and, and if Noah, as a vice regent of his day, had the right, if one person killed another person, to end that person's life, there ought to be laws that come out of that, even for lesser crimes with lesser punishments. And then you see the law of God in the Old Testament, and you see it all the way across the board. You see judges, you see Moses, you see Jethro establishing law and order in the Old Testament. There's a place for authority. In Genesis chapter 9, you also come to 1 Peter. Flip there with me if you've got a Bible. 1 Peter chapter 2, it, it, it's basically a mirror text to, the, to Romans 13. And this is Peter. This is the guy who chopped off the soldier's head, ear. This is Peter, that guy. This is Peter also a little while later where the persecution in Rome is actually happening. And he's writing there. So it's not just Paul's words, subject yourself. It's Peter's words. And these people are going through persecution. What does Peter say? Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, even Nero, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or the governing authority sent by them to punish, here it is, those who do evil, here's the purpose, and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should be put to silence, the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Wow. Listen, there are right reasons for government. Right reasons for government. It slows down evil. That's what we've seen. It slows down evil. Take the opposite of government, anarchy. What does anarchy do? It increases, rapidly increases evil. Go to, have you ever studied the book of Judges? It's absolutely depressing. I don't know if I ever want to have a sermon series. and I will. But it's just a cycle of rampant evil. And you come to Judges 18 through 25, and it's rough. And you know what it says after every time you see this great evil? It says there was no king in Israel, and the people did what was right in their own eyes. Y'all, I don't, what, what makes me nervous about the the ideology, the relativistic ideology that you and I live in, and we live in one of the greatest countries on the planet. We have the most freedoms, more freedoms than most countries could ever imagine. But it is scary. The, the ideology that says, I'm going to do what's right in my own eyes. That's here. I'm trying to scare you. That's here. And I don't know what you're take is on something like defund the police. This is my take. I'm just stepping outside. I don't think we need to defund the police. I think we need more help for the police. We need, we need people to come in and help the police in ways that they don't, aren't skilled, but that means we need to bankroll the police. How's it working out? How's the anarchy working out in Seattle? How's the anarchy working out in Chicago, in Minneapolis, how's that working out? Where, where there's no one to slow down evil, it's not. I have a brother who lives in Austin. 
Thank God the state has intervened and funded. My brother's a country kid like me. He can take care of himself. I've got two nieces and a nephew and a sister-in-law there. He's like, man, this is rough. Anarchy doesn't work. We need government. And also, you see in Scripture, government defends the weak. It's there to defend the weak and defend those who can't defend themselves. Go to Psalm 82 sometime. It's addressed to rulers. And it says, care for the weak. Those who don't have. Care for the oppressed. There is a right role of government to defend the weak and care for the oppressed. Government is God's ordained way to slow down evil. To keep us from anarchy. To defend the weak. Listen, there's a lot here. There's a whole lot here. I want to talk about some practical application. So what, right? What, what does that look like? You ever heard the phrase, after an election, we say this in our we deserve the government that we get? Never heard that? That we elect? I'm not going to get deeply political here, but I'm going to give you some principles. Because you do live in a world where you have the ability to give voice with a vote. And I know a vote is difficult because you're giving one vote. I just want to take a vote and go, I want a third of it to go to that person and a third of it to go to this person and a third of it to go to this person. It's kind of hard in our world to find one person for all of our vote to go to. It's one. And so it's complicated. I get that. But in a democracy that we live in where we get to vote and we get to have a say, let me ask you this question. What criteria is most important to you in electing officials? What's your highest criteria when you go to vote? Is it a pet issue, social issue, that may have some moral implications? Or is it your pocketbook? If the purpose of government, the primary purpose, the foundational biblical role of government is to raise up good, moral good, and to put down evil, how should that inform, inform your primary criteria in voting? It absolutely should. Very quiet in here, I know. Be careful, pastor. Here's a way I think about it. You know, I often hear people say, don't be a single-issue voter. And I would say this. There are no single-issue qualifiers for my vote. But there are single-issue disqualifiers for my vote. Let me explain what I mean by that, because this is true in other areas of your life and mine. Let's say you're dating someone. You're dating someone, and you have like this list. We all have lists, like I want this, 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 and this in a person, and I found it right here. Got the dating couples in the room looking at each other. And you're dating, and you've had the DTR, and you're exclusive. You're not dating anybody else. And, and the other person comes to you and says, hey, I just want you to know that I, I, I'm going on a date with somebody else this week. And I think that's what I want to do here. 
are there single-issue disqualifiers for your relationship? <laughs> there are. You've got all these other things that are important to you, but there are single-issue qualifiers for you to continue to date that person. I mean, you translate that in marriage. Hey, I'm just going to go hang out with this other man or this other woman. Wives, you got to say about that? Mm-hmm. Take the church. The Bible has some specific requirements. For example, for leadership in a church, eldership in the church. You can go to Titus 1. You can go to 1 Timothy 3. And you see these long lists, and nobody does all that list perfectly. I don't. But the trajectory of a man's life to be an elder ought to look like something. And there's a long list. There's no single issue qualifier. You need to see the whole picture. So if, if there's a man in our church and he is teach, very, a very good teacher, he knows the word, he knows doctrine, he's hospitable, he's able to teach, he's, he's a lot of those requirements, but let's say the man just, he struggles with alcohol and he's a drunk. Would, would we make him an elder? No, we would love him and we'd walk with him and we'd help him. But if he's actively struggling with that, there's a single issue disqualifier. And so I think it's a misnomer to say, you're just a single issue voter. No, I I think the way we ought to look at it as Christians, and this is me and my take, okay? But there ought to be a low moral bar. A low moral bar that we ought to require all of the people we would consider voting for to be able to jump over. If you're in track and field, I've used this example maybe individually. If you're in track and field and you, you're, a, you're a high jumper, you've got to pass a certain bar to get to the next round. We can't give people passes if they can't meet the low bar. And that may mean that we can't vote for anybody anymore. I don't know. And maybe the realist in you, I'm a realist voter, so I'm like, well, this outweighs this and this outweighs this. Man, a, a vote cast even for a person, this is my take, even for a person that might not win, you're never in trouble with the Lord when you vote for righteousness. Maybe that's where we're at. I don't know. Who's running? Who's running? We need people in politics, y'all. We need Christians in that space. And that's not being a Christian nationalist. That's caring about good and putting down evil. We need people. I'm going to tell you that... um, a number of years ago, when we were trying to get our adopted son back home, um, it was a mess. We had adopted him on paper, and we came back home for a few weeks, and many of you know this story. We came back home, and like they shut down adoptions in Ethiopia. And so we were in like this limbo, and they were saying, we need you to come and try to get Samuel out. He was ours on paper, but they shut it down. And... Um, one of the recommendations of our adoption agency was to call anybody in government, get the word out what's going on in this country, to let these children come to the homes that had already walked through that process. I didn't know my state reps. I didn't know any of these people. I had a friend, though, that I knew in Washington. He was a believer. He loved Jesus. And he was an associate for a state senator, junior state senator in Oklahoma. James Lankford. And James Lankford knows Jesus. 
He had a relationship with a lot of people in Ethiopia because he had spent a lot of time talking to the prime minister about adoption and rights for parents. He was a great help. I know, I don't know all the background of what happened, but I know he made calls to the prime minister of Ethiopia and basically this, the prime minister's right-hand lady who's over children's services to work angles so that our kids could come home. I'm grateful for people in government who care about raising up moral good and putting down evil. You ought to be too. It matters. We need to be engaged. There ought to be influence and engagement from Christians. And maybe you say to that, you can't legislate morality. And, and I know that. I know that we can't change people's hearts with legislation. However, here's what we give up as Christians when we just are indifferent because of that state. We give up way too much. The purpose of government is to raise up good and to put down evil. Do you not think that other lobbyist groups that completely disagree with you on values and morals and ethics aren't bringing as the baseline of why they're bringing legislation to the table their morals and their values? So if you mean you can't legislate morality, you can't change hearts, I'm with you. But if you mean we shouldn't pursue good, that I'm telling you, every single lobbyist group takes their values and they push those values forward because they believe in it. And they put them before legislation so that they might be represented. How much more as a Christian ought we say we know what is good and we know what is right. We're not trying to push that over people. But influence is right and good in your country. And that's not being a Christian nationalist. I feel like we live in this tension of label making, right? We label people as this if they, if they act like they care. And label people as that. We just label people in ways that we shouldn't. There ought to be influence here. I think this is the call of Scripture, to, to have influence. I'm just hitting it all today. I'm going to make everybody mad in some way. There's an origin of authority here. There's a purpose in government to uphold good and discourage evil. But there are, are, are there any specific ways that I really need to obey? And also, how do I know when not to obey? I mean, some of the examples I gave earlier are kind of obvious, at least on paper. At the beginning, we, we talked about some of those things. But, but here's your third point and final point. Generally, verse 5 through 7, generally citizens should seek to obey laws. In a general way, we should seek to, try to, obey laws, but with some notable exceptions. And you're saying, thanks, we're finally getting there. I need you to, I need you to say it. We need to pay taxes. Render to Caesar what's Caesar's. Render to the Lord what's the Lord's. Even under Nero, your government's not that bad. It's bad, it's not that bad. Show honor, look at it. Respect. Whom respect is owed. These are positions. Honor, who honor is owed. We struggle with that one. Man. 
remember Jesus and Paul and Peter encourage these kind of compliant, peaceful ways of being citizens, primarily for witness purposes. And also, this is not our home. We got one foot in it, but our home is citizenship in heaven. Listen, I don't have to tell you, you know, we've lost our sense of decorum. We've lost our sense as a culture, a society, of civility. We're citizens. We've lost our sense of civility. And some of that comes from, especially if you're older like me, or like older than 35, like you knew a time. I knew a time where there was more fabric there. And maybe we knew a time where you might confuse our nation with a quote-unquote Christian nation. It's never been that. But there was a time where you could argue morally things were better. And if you're younger than 35, you ought to have a little grace for people who are older who've experienced that. If you're younger than 35, you ought to also realize that influence is important. We ought to treat each other with a level of grace in this. But we've lost the sense of decorum. Here's what I don't think you would see. I don't think you would see Jesus, Paul, or Peter, even under Nero, picking up signs and saying, let's go, Nero. Man. In my neighborhood. Let's go, Brandon. Or worse. I don't like a lot of things. This text calls us to have a level of decorum and respect. I promise as a Christian, if you can pull that off, even a little bit, your witness will stand out. I hit one side, let me hit the other. Ongoing fake dossiers to out a president, whether you like him or not. Corruption, it's disgusting. There's no sense of decorum. There's no sense of right and wrong. Honor, respect, we've lost it. And I'm listening on the radio to a presidential debate, and I turn it on because I want to listen. My kids are in the car. We're going through the Chick-fil-A line. When it starts, I'm five minutes in. We haven't even got our food. And I turn it off. I don't want my kids to hear people talking like that. More or less, potential presidents of the United States. We're better than that as believers in Jesus. He calls us to more. Amen? That's not easy. You can point, you can point back at me if you want to, because I struggle with it. Because I'm frustrated. But we need to remember there is a sense of honor for position and respect. And we don't live in that. So we will stick out in a great way as believers in Jesus if we can keep the gospel truth in front of us in this way. There are exceptions. Let me walk through them quickly. When is disobedience okay? Even necessary and right and good. What if the government authority is evil and it's not good? The examples that you see in the Bible, there's a lot on on your worship guide at the bottom. I've given you a lot of text to go to. In the Bible, what you see, let me give you a big picture, then we'll go to a few texts. Where a person or people are, are direct, there's a direct circumstance right in front of them. It's not somebody else or way over there. There's direct circumstance. 
that violates the moral, the high moral law of God, the biblical truth of God's word, those are the ways in which you see these examples. And you see that not only with government, you see it in the home, you see it with men men and women. Ladies, you know the passage, submit yourself to your husband. As unto the Lord, there's a caveat there. If your husband's asking you to do something sinful and wrong, or asking you to do something you shouldn't do, you should not submit to him. In those cases, you should not follow sinful leadership. Same is true in government. Same is true in the home. Kids to parents. Parents to kids. Same is true in the workplace. If your boss is asking you to fudge on numbers, and that's hard if you're going, am I going to have a job? It applies to all authority. There are always caveats. There's some great examples. Let's start in the Old Testament. You come to Exodus chapter 1. Moses has died, and you see the midwives, the Hebrew midwives. And the nation of Israel is, is populating the earth. They're multiplying and filling the earth. And the new Pharaoh doesn't like it. He puts them in slavery, and then he comes to the Hebrew midwives and says, um, for the daughters that are born to the Hebrews, um, let them live. But for the boys, kill them. When they come to the bars to kill them. You know what the Bible says? The midwives feared God. And they would not kill these little Hebrew boys. Because they feared God. And what does God say? And, and, and then Pharaoh finds out. It's not happening. His command. And he's God. Right? In Egypt, he's God. Some irony in this. And he comes and, he's, and he said, what's going on? What are the wives, these midwives saying? Well, these Hebrew women, you know, they, they don't really make it to the midwife. They just have their babies. They're lying. <laughs> I mean, you, there's no way around it. They're, they're lying or they're just being shrewd, if, if that helps you. And you know what God does? God says, God deals well with the midwives, and, and they had children. He blesses them for their disobedience to a moral evil. Amen, right? Amen. You come to Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They won't bow to these foreign gods. He puts them, Nebuchadnezzar puts them in the fire. And what do they say? Whether God rescues us or not, you just need to know we're not going to submit. We're not going to worship your gods. We're going to worship our God. The irony was they made it through the fire. God protected them. And then Nebuchadnezzar worshiped the God of the Hebrews for their disobedience (laughs) and received glory through their disobedience to a governing authority over them. Esther comes before the king knowing she could die to save her people. Remember the wise men? They show up before Jesus' Jesus' birth. Herod wants to talk to them. He wants to know where baby Jesus is. When they leave, do they go back to Herod as Herod asked them to do? The ruler, the authority of the land? No. They leave. They go a different route. Civil disobedience. You see it all the way through the Bible. You see it in the book of Acts. 
couple of examples. They come before the council, the Jewish council who has authority in, in Jerusalem. And they've been sharing the gospel with everybody. And the book of Acts chapter 4 says this. So they called them. This is Peter and John and some other disciples. They called them and they charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, meaning do whatever you need to do. You must judge, but we can't but speak of what we have seen and heard. And they continue to share the gospel. They don't arrest them here or put them in prison here. And then the next chapter, all they're doing is sharing the gospel. They just keep speaking and disobeying the authorities. And you get to chapter 5, verse 28, and they come back to him and say, we strictly charged you not to teach in his name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and you intend to bring the man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. So you see, if someone's suppressing your ability to share the gospel in government or moral evil, they're asking you to perform moral evil. It is right and it is good and it is necessary to say no. You know, our world, some, some of this is, is easy. Some of these examples are easy. The examples I gave you in the beginning, some of those are easier. But the last two years have been harder, have it not? During COVID, what is government overreach? What is not? The beginning of a pandemic, this is my take, the beginning of a pandemic where you don't know if this thing is going to kill a big part of the population or a little part of the population, either way. You don't know, and so there's lockdowns. Two weeks, didn't work, right? There's lockdowns, and then there's mask mandates, and, and this one's harder because you could argue on one hand that, look, the government's trying to protect, and they're trying to do good. They're not trying to be evil. They're trying to protect citizens. And you get to a place, though, after a while, and you're going, okay, uh, mandates, um, churches not meeting. Praise God, I live in Texas. Wasn't as much of an issue. Hard stuff to weigh in. Our elders weighed in it. Hard stuff, and every church was different. But if you live in Canada or like California, really different. I had pastors I was talking to go, what are you going to do? God's word says that we ought to gather together as the body of Christ. And they're saying no, and we have plenty of data to suggest it's not, it's not a thing. So, so when? That's a difficult situation. It's not an easy situation to understand. And then you've got, now you've got vaccine mandates. I'm just saying, we're hitting it all. <laughs> vaccine mandates, and you could lose your job if you don't take a vaccine. And that vaccine is... And, the, and this virus is morphing and changing. And some of you, people in this room have health conditions and their doctor's saying, don't do it. How do you make sense of that? When do you define, know that there may be consequences? We'll get to chapter 14 about conscience in a few weeks. But a, a much more difficult situation. 
in Nazi Germany or civil war to, to understand and to know. But I think the general principle is the same from this text. As far as it depends on you, try to live at peace with all men. If you can't obey, trust God. Let me tell you what not to do. Don't fear. Don't look for loopholes. Do pray. That's what 1 Timothy 2 says. It says pray for kings and authority in high places. Pray. Do engage in meaningful interaction, in meaningful pursuit that raises up good, that puts down evil. Let me give you a couple of good resources if you want to read. And they are resources. They're like resource books. So you're not going to sit down in your book club and read these. Probably. Wayne Grudem has two books that I would highly recommend. Christian Ethics. And then a book called, here's the title for you. Politics According to the Bible. How about that? Chapter 3. It's all about the role of government. Really helpful. He's not hardcore one way or another. If you're looking for helpful Resource, study it, understand it. Study it and understand it more than you study and understand the podcast that you like or the news station that you lean on. Understand God's word, understand the times that we live in. So the origin of government is good, it's from God, we submit to it, we respect it. The purpose of government is to promote good and put down evil. And so we engage in ways that make sense for us as citizens to engage. But we know it's broken, right? Until Jesus comes back, we, we know it's broken to some degree or another. Even here, it's broken. And so we've got to weigh into the wisdom of when to obey and when not to obey. This text says, be careful before you disobey which is right and good. There's a guy named Danny Aiken, and I think he summarized this text in my mind really well, or the meaning and the intent of it really well. He says this. He's a pastor. He says, as a devoted follower of Christ, I will say yes to obeying the government and paying taxes to Caesar, but I will say no to disobeying the word of God and worshiping a man or an institution. Independence Day for the Christian is not marked by a flag. Independence Day is Easter, marked by the cross in an empty tomb. We've got to remember where our allegiance lies. Here's your takeaway. Let your ultimate allegiance be the King Jesus who rules and reigns. There's a song that goes like this, kings and kingdoms will fade away, but Christ's kingdom endures. You're a citizen of heaven. Your hope, your hope is in the enduring rule and reign of Christ, so you need not fear. That is where our hope is. He reigns. Let me pray.